From the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. The rise of an increasingly affluent and assertive China is dramatically changing our strategic environment. As a Chinese-majority country, Singapore's ties with China have special significance. Today, we speak to Sensor, a PhD candidate in Comparative Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore, on the complex history of the local Chinese community's ties with China and its interests, Singapore's Mandarin media coverage of China, and potential risks for Singapore from the US-China strategic rivalry. Thanks very much, Sensor, for joining us today. Historically, the Chinese educated and Chinese schools have been at the forefront of anti-colonialism and resistance against Western hegemony. They've also been characterized as having been disadvantaged by Singapore's economic prioritization of English and the closure of Nanyang University in 1980. How do you think this legacy has influenced their response to a resurgent and assertive China? I think it's a very interesting question. I think it's important to start answering it by going back to looking at the actual history of the Chinese schools in Singapore, because this is often forgotten how they came about and how pivotal they were to the Chinese community, right? Because you have to forget, you have to realize that traditionally the British colonial authorities left the communities to their own devices when it came to education. And so the Chinese communities with their own sweat and tears built these schools. And they often had to fight a struggle for them to be recognized. And so for them, these schools were very potent symbols of their communities care for each other and also of this struggle for self-governance almost against the British colonial authorities, right? And then also, if you go back to the roaring 40s and 50s in Singapore, these schools were the center points of anti-colonial resistance, of becoming aware of the fact that Chinese had to govern themselves in Malaya and had to do so also to get rid of the British so they can be their own boss here. If we then look at what happened to the schools later, the way they weren't just attacked by the colonial authorities, but also by the the post-independence government, for a lot of those people, there was a lot of continuity between the way they were treated. And so there is just this continuous sense of having to struggle to maintain these symbols of the Chinese community. And then obviously, once, once the schools were actually either closed down or forced to switch to English medium education, the diplomas that the students had gotten there seemed to be worth a lot less. And also in a time when there were just very, very few places in university in Singapore, people with Chinese diplomas often had difficulty even graduating from high school, but even if they did graduate, often getting a high enough score to qualify for a university spot. And so there is a, the schools are tremendously important as a symbol for the community, for how they were slighted and how they lost out in life and how they were persecuted precisely because they were Chinese, right? Because these schools were expressions of the Chinese community, of their care for it, for their own, of their culture, of passing on the language and the, and the civilization, and also of the struggle to maintain this in the face of colonial and post-independence government pressure. And so this is, you know, these schools are now seen as protectors of privilege because that's how the SAP schools functions nowadays. 
And, but for the Chinese community, of course, SAP schools were compromised. They, they gave up their schools. They gave up the Chinese medium education in return for the SAP money. And the compromise was that then they could keep some of this Chinese heritage alive. And I think that is a difficult thread because obviously we can all see the way SAP schools function in modern Singapore. But for a lot of this of the Chinese, especially the elderly Chinese in Singapore, these schools are a reminder of how hard they fought to be taken seriously, how fought they had how hard they had to fight against the government and how much they suffered. I mean, like imagine, right? If you're in school in the seventies, eighties, with the level of English they had, if you if you're suddenly forced to switch from Mandarin to English, but you know, passing mathematics and high enough to to compete for university spots with native speakers. I mean, this is this is impossible, right? And so there's this immense trauma there. I mean, of course, also among the Malay vernacular schools, perhaps the Tamil vernacular schools, but there are just more Chinese schools. And this legacy, I think, is quite important to deal with. There's a lot of pain there. But of course, the practical reality is also that we have a very big community that were taught in Mandarin, that therefore also might primarily read, write, and listen, and speak in Mandarin. And that is not going to go away. And so they might feel uncomfortable having to switch to English all the time, but also they will consume more Mandarin media. The Chinese in Southeast Asia have a mixed legacy of both having been under colonial rule and as migrants with significant economic influence. How does this factor into current discussions of historical injustice and privilege? Obviously, the idea of Chinese privilege has proven quite fruitful to many non-Chinese uh, in Singapore recently to point out certain problems. I mean, if we, if we look back, but if you look back at how, what, you know, what white privilege meant in the United States, we see it is linked to what is different from majority privilege because white privilege in America is linked to white supremacy and European settler colonialism. Whereas, of course, in Singapore, Singapore was not founded based on Chinese supremacy and under a Chinese colonial empire, right? So I say that the, this turn to, to Asian values or Confucian values and the whole support for the China boom is something from the 1980s onwards. And obviously, Singapore was colonized by the British. And that leaves, it leg, leaves a legacy as well, right? And it, so that's why I think often I, I find it quite useful to compare Singapore's situation to that of Taiwan. Because Taiwan also is an island that used to be run by several indigenous tribes related to the Malays and the Filipinos until the 17th century when it was colonized first by the Dutch and then later by the Chinese who turned Taiwan into a settler colony, right? So from the 17th century onward, Taiwan was settled by ethnic Chinese. Then it became a Japanese colony in the late 19th century before 1945 it was taken over by the Chinese nationalists who then part of whom fled to it in 1949, and then ran a brutal, murderous dictatorship until the late 1980s, 1990s. And so the Taiwanese see themselves also as victims of colonization by both the Japanese, by the Chinese Nationalist Party, the KMT, as well as by the pressure coming from China now. Whereas often, of course, the indigenous in Taiwan will see themselves you know, they, they're not very happy with this because they say, wait, wait a minute, uh, you think you're the victim, but this used to be our island, right? 
and you just taken our land. You were the ones who took our land in the, in the 17th century, and now you think you are the victim. And but the thing is, of course, all those things are true at the same time. Same thing, I think, applies to Singapore in a little bit, right? Even the slurs, right? So in Taiwan, the Hokkien-speaking people there will use the slur Huang Kia, Huana, for the indigenous people. As the Hokkien-speaking people in West Malaysia, Singapore, Sumatra do the same for the Malays. It's like means like something like savage. Obviously, if you look back, right, if you see how the Chinese educated were treated before, they were victimized for being too Chinese. But at the same time, of course, now they are the majority. And so any feelings of supremacy that used to be there have now gotten more space to unfold. And secondly, we have, as I said before, the China boom since the 1980s. Singaporeans had to learn to learn about China because it was seen as economically useful to the country. And you see the whole Speak Mandarin campaign also often imbued with a kind of economic value, leading to basically the two the two valuable languages in Singapore are now English and Mandarin, right? There are supposed to be four official languages, but, you know, ones that really matter are English and Mandarin. And also, SAP schools have turned from being marginalized, suppressed centers of anti-colonial resistance to English medium schools that produce elites, but that are still then, of course, producing Chinese elites, or at least promoting Chinese values. And so, in Singapore, we have this situation where just like in Taiwan, the majority is ethnic Chinese who also used to be colonial subjects and who also often were seen as backwards because they were too Chinese as the Japanese saw them or even the KMT also saw Taiwanese as too, you know, too Southern, too rural and therefore also not modern enough. The same thing maybe with the PAP and the British also, they saw the Chinese in Singapore as too Chinese, too backwards, too superstitious. and now, of course, this has changed. And this also gives space to existing racisms or imperial legacies within the Chinese community to, to become more mainstream. And I think this is interesting part here, right? Where in the past, these were the, the prejudices maybe among a people that were also just, you know, one of the colonized people. Chinese now are a majority that dominate the government. And then if you look at how we talk about Chinese culture, for example, there's a lot of unacknowledged legacy of, you know, in the West, we have scientific racism. In China, this took the form of civilizational supremacy. Basically, the idea that in the past, this whole, you know, the Chinese center of the world, and further you get removed from, from the center from China, the, the, le the less civilized people are. And then the fact that China itself also engaged in what we would now, can now describe as settler colonialism, right? So China expanded from the central plains to, to like places like Yunnan and Guangxi and Xinjiang and Mongolia and Taiwan, basically through settler colonialism. And spreading civilization, Chinese talk about, you know, Confucian virtues, attracting people who submit voluntarily because they recognize the superiority of Chinese civilization. Whereas in reality, they were convinced in part also by military means, you know, this, these are often murderous campaigns to, to teach the barbarians, the savages a lesson to submit and to become cultured. I mean, even like the famous Admiral Zheng He, who sailed his ships to Southeast Asia in a, supposed mission, in a supposedly peaceful mission of 
tribute and trade. In, he came with the biggest ships ever built in the world until in history until then, with tens of thousands of soldiers. He was his fleet was so big they had to build support bases in the region. They, you know, if tomorrow before the coast of Singapore we have what, you know four American aircraft carrier groups with a hundred thousand soldiers, you know, do we then think any Singapore concession is voluntary out of how inspired we are by American greatness? Or do we think maybe the threat of four aircraft carrier groups might have something to, to do with it? Now we have an increasingly ethno-nationalist government on the Xi Jinping that is engaging in genocide in Xinjiang, in part based on these very old ideas of Chinese civilizational superiority that has never been properly dealt with. And that, again, as I said before, if a lot of Chinese in Singapore are watching Chinese television, reading Chinese news, those ideas might seep in here, but also, of course, they might reactivate older prejudices that might still be alive among Chinese communities in Singapore and have never been properly discussed because we might see colonialism as something Western, right? There's still a very Americentric view of imperialism, whereas there are multiple imperialisms in the world. And I think this also is relevant to the Chinese privilege debate because, yes, of course, Chinese privilege in Singapore is modified by the fact that it used to be a British colony, but we do have to deal also with the legacy of Chinese colonialism in China and the ideas this germinated in what we now call Chinese civilization. You've been studying how Singapore's Chinese language media has been covering issues related to China and Taiwan. What are some of the key patterns you have found? As I said before, right, the exist the legacies and of Chinese, Chinese medium education, a researching pride in being Chinese, mean that there's a group of people in Singapore who, who are more comfortable working in Chinese and maybe are quite pr- proud that there is a China to be proud of again. And I think especially the people who, who, who work in Chinese language media in Singapore might also spend a lot of time immersed in that environment. And so what I what I found when I, you know, going through Cao Bao editorials and reporting, it's actually quite surprising for someone like me who studies Chinese politics quite a lot and also follows what you know, the people's daily rights and things like that, how much of the language from the PRC you find mirrored in Cao Bao. I guess, you know, there's this idea that Singapore is independent, they have their own voice, and for the Straits Times, it's generally quite true within certain bounds. But Cao Bao really reads like a Chinese newspaper at times in how they cover things. I mean, of course, the the main eye-catching example is that since earlier this year, Cao Bao moved all the Taiwan news and Hong Kong news under just the category China, right? So even domestic Taiwanese news is now reported by Cao Bao as Chinese news. But this is just, you know, an aggravation of of an existing pattern. Editorials will just echo the same Chinese language about inevitable rise of China. They will, they will frame things black and white as a struggle between America and China. They ignore Southeast Asian countries' own views on their difficulties with China. Cao Bao will write about you know, Taiwan as if they have no own thoughts about you know, their independence. It's in the cartoonist for Cao Bao who was quite famous internationally for a racist cartoon he drew of, of the Indian space program. 
continues to show his, I would say, chauvinism or nationalism in in, uh, in Cao Bao drawing quite pro-China cartoons, I would say. And also, basically, literally, I, the one day I read some new misinformation campaign against Taiwanese vaccines, and the next day, the editorial cartoonist in Cao Bao repeats the same narrative. That's the kind of stuff that happens, which made me then wonder, you know, because I, then I see why is Cao Bao pushing an uncritical video story of Liang Jiaxi, the village where Xi Jinping spent the Cultural Revolution? What function does this have? I mean, why, do, why would Singaporeans even care? And I think Singaporeans don't really care. It's just that Cao Bao, if you look at the, the audience, it's enormously, an enormous amount of Cao Bao's readers, our PRCs, are from China. Not just PSCs in Singapore. They are just literally readers from China. Because Sabao is in a unique position where their website is mostly unblocked by the Great Firewall. And this is really this is impossible for Chinese language media outside of China because the Chinese Communist Party wants full control. And so Sabao, of course, is very, very precious and very rare and probably also quite profitable <laughs> line to China which they have to protect and they can only protect it by making sure they do not offend the Chinese censors. But of course, also having so many Chinese readers, you want to make sure the Chinese readers remain interested. So the material you choose to publish will also appeal to their sensibilities as well as Singaporean readers' sensibilities. And the second thing, of course, is that China is just so big. The gravity of China is just enormous that so much of entertainment in Mandarin so much of news in Mandarin, of writing in Mandarin is not dominated by China, especially if you talk about simplified Chinese, right? Because Singapore is, is, is 5.7 million people. There's a few more million people in Malaysia who might read simplified Chinese. Most of them are the 1.2 billion people in the PRC. And then you have the fact that Singaporeans can't write Chinese anymore because the Mandarin medium schools are gone. And so to get people who can write for Taobao or people who might want to write editorial opinion pieces for Taobao, they will get people from China. And obviously they themselves, with no fault of their own, are part of the same PRC bubble, right? Because that is what you get. Taobao is supposed to explain to serve Singapore. And maybe as, you know, whereas what we now have happening is that Taobao ends up being sucked into this PRC bubble. Also helped by the fact, you know, we have, again, like I said before, we have the Asian values discourse, which suits, fits quite nicely with China's own narrative about the China model as alternative to Western universalism. Uh, we also have the fact that the Chinese medium schools themselves were anti-colonial hotbeds, of course, anti-Western colonialism, which also fits more nicely with being critical of Western bias or Western whatever. And of course, then, this is amplified by the fact that China makes everything about everything appear to be China versus the West. But sadly, then you lose an independent Singaporean voice, right? Because obviously it's not Singapore, it's not China, Singapore is not the West. But if you are sucked into this PRC bubble, you might end up adopting this black and white view. If as many senior Singaporeans, you're mainly familiar or comfortable reading Mandarin, then also the worldview you get presented is very PRC. How has China's own state media capitalized on Singapore's Mandarin media coverage for its own purposes? 
I mean, I guess the main the main benefit for China is that they have a lot of people here who might be sympathetic towards their worldview. It's a soft power, right? So Chinese soft power works better among people who speak Mandarin. This is the same, you know, China can try what they want, but obviously the people who are going to watch Chinese movies and sing Mando pop songs are Mandarin speakers generally. Of course, even more so for people who will, the kind of people who get swayed by Chinese language opinion pieces about foreign policy. But also they can then use, they can then use what Cao Bao writes for their own benefit because the PS, the CCP always likes to make sure that people think there is a massive support for China from abroad. And especially the Singapore brand carries quite a lot of weight. And for example, when when China unannounced so the Sinopharm vaccines to Singapore in February, they announced quite proudly because they want to, you know, they're quite happy that Singapore is using Sinopharm vaccines. And the, within the press, this kind of propaganda has it has a name called Jiechuan uh, Chuhai. It means borrowing a boat to go out on the sea. Basically, if you can use someone else's label, someone else's brand to package your message, then it might be more palatable, right? So they, they will buy a, a page in The Economist that looks like an article that promotes their view. But also, Cao Bao might write something that is quite positive about reasons why young Chinese will join the Chinese Communist Party. And then Xinhua, the, the state press agency, will write a glowing report, you know, how Singapore newspaper reports why young people believe in the CCP. Or, for example, a former Singapore politician might write an editorial in piece in the Taobao about Western propaganda. And then, of course, Xinhua says, Singapore newspaper attacks Western bias because they often make you know, they they will often play it up a little bit to make it appear more strongly in their favor. I mean, the biggest example was when Taobao reported some remarks by a Chinese spokesperson, and the Xinhua reported these remarks as if they were the Taobao's own findings, right? And and so Taobao lends itself quite well because it is relatively close to the PRC worldview, but it is a Singapore newspaper. And so it's a, you know, it's just a Singapore brand, uh, which is quite coveted because it is respected both in China, so Chinese officials recognize it, but also respected in the West. Now moving on slightly to uh, a more domestic focus, research from Pew shows that 72% of Chinese Singaporeans have a positive view of China in contrast with just 45% of Malay Singaporeans and 52% of Indian Singaporeans. From a broader perspective, what possible risks does this pose to Singapore's multicultural society and its foreign policy? I mean, I think foreign policy is not very likely to cause a lot of trouble initially in Singapore because foreign policy has never become a very strong political topic, right? If you remember the recent general election, foreign policy was not really a major topic. It never has been really. And this is partially by design. If precisely because the PAP government was afraid that foreign policy views might be race-determined, right? They were, of course, the, the expectation Malays would be loyal with Malaysia, Chinese with China, uh, Indians with India. And this hasn't happened so far. But the, the diff- different thing now is that Singaporeans have become pretty unified versus Malaysia. I mean, you can tell on, on Twitter, whatever, 
whenever something happens, they will make fun of Malaysia. In any case, Malaysia is a very small part of the country. India also is not very busy with trying to mobilize South Asians in Singapore either. China, however, is an increasingly ethno-nationalist country. And Chinese are the majority of Singaporeans. And so we have an unfortunate double whammy there, where especially on the Xi Jinping, increasingly we see a blurring in China among the, of the distinction between overseas citizens and overseas and, and ethnic Chinese outside of China, right? So officially, there is this formulation called Haiwai, Huaren, Huachao. So Huachao are overseas Chinese citizens. Huaren are, are non-PRC, non-citizen Chinese, ethnic Chinese. And increasingly, they were either just, you know, say, Huaren, uh, Huachao in one word, as if it is one phrase, or they will just say Haiwai, Chaobao overseas compatriots. So what we get is this conflation that Chinese are Chinese are Chinese are Chinese. And China is the PRC, is the CCP, is the people. So basically, they increasingly expect loyalty to the country from the people. And the people increasingly include all ethnic Chinese. And these kind of ideas are increasingly common in Chinese media. And as I said before, things like Bao are increasingly part of this Chinese media environment. So these ideas also seep into Singaporean Mandarin language media. At the same time, we already see, of course, that so many Singaporeans are more favorable towards China. This is maybe quite natural. Again, like a lot of people, your, your grandparents or great-grandparents might be the ones coming from China, maybe even your parents. So especially if you're elderly in Singapore, you, know, you might actually you know, have been born there. It's, it's natural, but as parts of Singapore become increasingly wary, as for example, at some point, the government might want to adopt anti-influence legislation and might, want, might end up having to explicitly single out certain Chinese operations, certain Chinese individuals, certain Chinese groups. There might be a backlash among people who, who predominantly live in his, Chinese, in his Mandarin media, media bubble. And I think that might be a risk then where it does become, it, it is basically an ethnicized division about foreign policy or about what, it, what at that point has become domestic policy, national security policy. And I think that might be, that's the risk that this is worsened if part of the, of the country lives in a PRC media bubble, right? Because Straits Times is relatively even-handed, I would say. Uh, I don't think Berita Harian is you know very active about China, and that's that's a, that's the mainstream debate. But then, if you look at Sao Paulo, they talk about how it it's it's a very different world, and that I think might cause some some uh, division. So, given these challenges and risks, is it still realistic for Singapore to continue charting a sort of middle path between the U.S. and China, without being perceived as a pawn of either superpower? I mean, Singapore's neutral standpoint of, has, has always been less neutral than they want to make it appear, right? I mean, quite obviously, Singapore, as security-wise, has chosen America. Most of, a lot of your Air Force is permanently stationed in the U.S. There is American, there's U.S. Navy in Singapore and so on, right? So, I mean, I remember talking to a professor in, in Beijing, and he also explained to me that according to them, you know, Singapore's just pro-America but they also want to free ride 
on China's economic growth. And so that perception is quite strong. I think under, under Trump, there was also a perception that, that Singapore was free riding on American security while still siding with China economically. So that's, I guess, the perception risk you are dealing with. But in reality, you know, China is nearby. And so you always naturally will want to balance against China with the far, the far away power America. So this logic has always been there. It's not going away. In that sense, Singapore already has a choice. It's just not a very neat black and white choice. There's no, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a PM speech saying, I love America or I love China. Of course, the problem is just that, you know, this policy of not choosing publicly does depend on both choices being there not to choose, if it makes sense. You, you can only choose, you can, you can only not choose something if it is still there to not choose. So it's, if at some point America becomes isolationist or just, you know, goes up in smoke, then of course you can't choose to rely any, you can't use security anymore. Also, you can't not choose, you can't also keep the American choice hanging over China as a way to balance them. Same thing also if China becomes too extreme, right? Say, for example, they begin demanding complete loyalty from all ethnic Chinese, then obviously Singapore has to reject them, which of course also makes sure then they will have to side with America against China, right? And so that, I think the main thing is not really in Singapore's hands. It depends on the direction that China and America will take. Given this serious implications of superpower rivalry, uh, what do you think Singaporeans can do to protect themselves better against foreign influence campaigns and improve their literacy on foreign affairs? As a PhD student, my answer is, of course, going to be read more books, read more history. I mean, I think it's always very good to know your country, to know what is going on, to know how things work. But also, of course, to read the history of places like China and America, so you know how they operate historically and you know how they operate now. But I think in general, what society needs is to be resilient, to have a healthy public debate, right? And so that's why having a Singaporean newspaper is so important. That's why I think I've been going on about Sao Bao so much, because I think what Singapore needs also is to have its own truly independent Mandarin language media that also represents Singapore interests, or at least the Singapore public debate, right? Because then Sao Bao could serve as an anchor point for an independent Singapore-centered view of the world, just like the science might also serve. The second thing is, though, is more difficult is that you would need transparency. You need to, have, you need to be, both be able to discuss these kind of influence operations openly, but also you need to be, have, you know, have a registry for the kind of business groups that exist. Because increasingly they, they are, and also there's, they're more active, there are more Chinese people active in those business groups. But also you, have, you need things like in Europe, where we have, the EU has a registry where, where you can see what lobbyists meet with what, MPs, what business groups, what clan groups, whatever, go meet with what MP, what minister. But this kind of system is not very, let's say, the Singapore system isn't really built around that kind of transparency. That might be more difficult. So I think the main thing that might be that there's open, honest reporting about what is happening, how these business groups, for example, pressured the government about Sinovac, how 
Chinese embassies around the world have operations to influence Chinese communities there, right? So that people are aware of what is happening, but also so that policymakers are aware of what is happening. Because in the end, people in government are also part of society. And if they have no space, they also depend on the papers just like we do, right? And so to, it's also necessary to fortify the government by having this debate in public. But I'm afraid that transparency and public debate aren't the, the, the fortes of this political system. And so I think then by lack of alternative, at least make sure that you don't have your own newspapers being drawn all too strongly into another country's bubble.